go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Samuel 7, and while you're finding that passage, um, let me just say to you in the red shirts, um, when Pastor Andrew opened the service and he was kind of explaining to the rest of us, you know, things are going to be a little bit different this morning, I had this thought in the back of my mind that I hope you know that everybody in this room is glad that you're here, and we love you, and we're excited for you, and we, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but I really think we can see the potential that this group represents, even better than you guys can see for yourselves. I mean, the potential is unlimited, and so we are so, so thankful that that you guys choose to be here with us. Uh, here at Indian Creek, right? Am I right about that? I mean, we're just, it's, a, it's our privilege, and it's, it's amazing. So uh, we're excited that you're here. Uh, let's go ahead and turn our attention now to, to the scriptures. And I, I, uh, join me in, in 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to go ahead and begin reading in verse 2. 1 Samuel 7, verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at, at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shane and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines 
there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning grateful, grateful for the way that you've worked uh, in our church family this week. Uh, we've come together to grieve. Our young people have come together to relentlessly pursue Jesus and to uh, just go after you. And, and God, you have been with us this week. Lord, as we examine this text, I, I pray that you, would, uh, that you would take the little seeds that have been planted in each of our hearts, seeds of truth, seeds of your word, and, and have begun to sprout up, and I pray that you would uh, cause those little plants of faith to grow strong, and that we would not be choked out by the cares of the world, by the anxieties of life that your word would not be plucked away by the enemy, but that you would make in us hearts uh, whose soil is uh, ready to receive and to grow those seeds of faith. Father, we also lift up those who are grieving this morning in our midst. Uh, we know that there are many. Uh, we pray for Inez, as she grieves Gordon, and uh, for uh, the Richards family, and for the Bennett family, and for all of the uh, brothers and sisters in Christ of, of Robert Payne, and uh, Lord, all those who are before you today just with hearts that are broken and bruised, I pray that you would comfort and heal. Lord, I pray also for Mike Hott, as he is in the hospital, I, I ask that you would protect him, and that you would... Uh, heal his body right now. And then, Father, we also want to lift up our world. We live in turbulent times, and we know that even now uh, there are strategies and schemes being played out, especially in Eastern Europe. And so we ask, first of all, that you would break the power of the enemy and all the principalities and powers who claim illegitimate authority over that region of the world. Uh, we cannot see everything that they're doing, but we know that they are at work, and we ask that you would stop them in their tracks, and that you would show yourself to be the king. Lord, I pray that you would arrest the attention of world leaders, and that you would bring peace to our world. Uh, we don't deserve it, but Lord, we ask this all because of the blood of Christ, and knowing that Jesus, you pray for us, interceding on our behalf always. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. As I was getting ready for, uh, to preach this text, I was reminded that uh, as a young boy growing up in eastern Pennsylvania, uh, my family and I would often, especially when the weather was nice, uh, 
uh, drive the 45 minutes or so from our home in Bucks County to Valley Forge National Park. Uh, Valley Forge is where General George Washington and the Continental Army uh, spent some of the difficult months of the War for Independence starving in the cold during the winter of 1777 and 78. And what we used to do as a, a family is we'd park at the visitor center and then we'd walk along the, the bike trails or, or, or the pathway a mile or so to this massive uh, arch. And uh, we would stop there and we'd kind of rest for a minute and then we'd walk back. And uh, I remember that as a, as a young boy, this huge arch, this neoclassical arch that's just standing there in the middle of a roundabout in the center of the park. I learned later that this arch in Valley Forge National Park is called the United States National Memorial Arch. It was constructed in 1917 as a monument commemorating the sacrifice of Washington's troops in the war. The inscription over the archway reads, Naked and starving as they are, we cannot enough admire the incomparable patience and fidelity of the soldiery. When the governor of Pennsylvania gave a speech at the Arches dedication on June 11, 1917, he spoke of the spirit of Valley Forge and how it shaped the United States into a nation that's able to endure hard times. Now, time is going to tell whether that spirit continues to live on in our nation or, or not in the years to come, but uh, its significance certainly had an impact on me as a young boy. I mean, here, here is this massive structure designed to weather the wind and the, and the years and the decades and signify the enduring character of a people and a nation. It had an impact on me. It was something memorable to me. Nations all over the world, when they want to communicate something about themselves, they set up a stone monument. And in our text today, we see that the nation of Israel was no exception. Finally, after a series of devastating blows to their national identity, Israel finally has something good to remember, some reason to commemorate the occasion. They've been bludgeoned by the Philistines for years, and finally the tables turn, and Samuel sums it all up, not by praising the endurance of the Israelite soldiers, but by remembering the kindness and the mercy of God. The question is, what made the difference? What led to God's rescue? What led to the victory celebration at Ebenezer, the stone of help, and the restorative years to follow? What led to these things? What was the occasion of God's inter intervention on behalf of his people? And the, the answer to that question in our text is fairly straightforward. Israel repented. Israel turned back to the Lord. You see, this passage presents for us a contrast between all the different ways that God does not want to be approached and related to and this one very specific way that he does want to be related to. Here's Israel. Here's the Philistines. They've treated God to, to the respect of any of their other gods. They've treated him with respect, but in the same place as these other false idols. And yet, when they repented, when they turned from this, when they were broken, and they began to offer him their exclusive devotion, his, 
zealous mercy broke out on their behalf so powerfully that they were able to commemorate it in a stone monument. And uh, what this passage shows, shows us, as, as you'll see in just a moment, is that divine rescue, divine restoration, divine deliverance follows real repentance. Not, not ritual, not a relic, not empty religion, but real repentance. And we're going to see that play out in, in each of three movements in this passage. So notice with me in the first place from verses 2 through 6, the nature of repentance explained. The nature of repentance explained. Here's the ark. It's in Kiriath-Jerim. It's not ideal. It stays there for 20 years. It seems that during this 20-year period, Israel is sort of picking up the pieces of a broken theocracy. And, and notice how after all that's taken place with regard to the ark of the covenant, uh, if, you, if you're here for the first time today, we've been kind of working through 1 Samuel. You can read that on your own. Uh, just take you a few minutes to catch up. But the Ark of the Covenant has made these travels in these last few chapters, and, and Israel's just been kind of broken. And we're told in verse 2 that they lamented after the Lord. Uh, according to Hebrew scholar Robert Alter, the Hebrew word of the Hebrew root of this word, sorry, got a little tongue tied there. Uh, it means something like to weep, to cry. In, in other words, uh, here's the children of Israel, they're sorry, they're sad, right? They're emotional about the things that have taken place. They feel the breakdown in the relationship between them and God. But as we all know, there is a, there's a big difference between being sad and sorry on the one hand and being truly repentant on the other. You know this. I mean, imagine you catch your friend gossiping about you to somebody else and you confront him about it, and, and he's all weepy, he's sad, he's upset about it, and he's crying, and he apologizes, and he begs you to forgive him, but then the very next week, you catch him doing the same thing. There's a guy who's sorry, he felt bad because you caught him in the act, he didn't want you to be angry at him, he, but he, he really wasn't sorry that he had done something wrong, and he certainly wasn't repentant. See, real repentance is elusive, it's easy to fake it. We can even fake ourselves into thinking that we're repentant when we're not. So these verses are helpful because they describe four characteristics of real repentance. Look at how Samuel guides the children of Israel. First of all, notice that real repentance involves affections, but it impacts our actions. Real repentance involves affections, but it impacts our actions. Look at verse 3. Samuel says this, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods. If you're going to do this for real, like you've got to do something. You've got to actually change the way you live. That word return is very common in the Old Testament. It's used over a thousand times. It means to turn or turn back. Uh, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the translators often use the word that means repent. It's the same word uh, as the one that appears in this passage. And Samuel says, basically, let's talk about what it really means to truly repent, to truly turn back to the Lord with all your heart. There are two components. It starts in your heart, but then it affects the way that you act. It, it's, uh, this is the first mark of real repentance. It involves both the heart and the hands, the affections and the actions, your beliefs and your behaviors. If you have kids, uh, you see this. Tears, as you all know, do not equal repentance, right? 
Mom, I'm so sorry. No, you're sorry you got caught. You guys know what I'm talking about? You're sorry you got into trouble. Emotion is not enough. And yet, on the other hand, we all know what it's like for our kids to change their behavior, but their heart really isn't in it either. Real repentance involves both a change of heart and in the way that we act. This is something Paul explained to the church in in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 7. They had wronged him. They had been rejecting his ministry in favor of some false apostles. And he had to write them a severe letter of rebuke. And Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 7, he said, I'm sorry that I made you... uh, I made you sorry with my letter, but I actually don't feel bad about that. I'm not happy that you felt bad. I'm happy because your bad feeling led you to really repent. It led you to change. Uh, You proved it because you changed your behavior. So real repentance involves affections and it impacts our actions. Secondly, notice with me, real repentance is absolute. Real repentance is absolute. What I mean is that It is an unconditional surrender. There are no terms. You don't say, God, uh, I'm going to repent. Let's work out the negotiation here. Let's, you know, I'll I'll give you, you know, so much of my time, and then I'm going to keep back this much for myself. That's not the way that repentance works. Real repentance is absolute. Samuel says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the goddesses from among you, and you direct your heart to the Lord and serve him, how? Only. Serve him only. Total surrender. A complete 180 degree turn. You remember the lessons Israel learned in the previous chapters. They respected God's power. The Philistines did too. They recognized that God was present. And so did the Philistines. So did their enemies. They knew he was present. The problem was that they were putting God in a place alongside a pantheon of other gods. And they wanted to appease them all. See, this was exactly what Satan and his armies wanted. They wanted to be equal with God. They wanted to share the glory of God. But guess what? God isn't like those other gods. He isn't a powerful spirit merely. He is the creator of all things. He's the only self-existent, uncreated, eternal, absolute, sovereign king. And so for Israel to come weeping to God, oh God, please forgive us, we're so sorry. We're going to sacrifice to you. We're going to pray to you. We're going to sing songs about you. And then turn around and and also kind of behind his back, so to speak, offer sacrifices to all these other idols. That wouldn't be real repentance. That would be missing the point entirely. God wants real repentance. That means total, absolute surrender. Now, you may need to hear this today. God invites you to respond to him, to move toward him. And the way to do that is not to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus onto an already full plate. You say, I don't have a shrine in my house with a bunch of other idols. I I don't worship idols. Maybe not, but but you might need to hear this because whether they are physical statues or idols of, of the heart, here's what you're doing. You're saying, here's my life. 
I've got my job and, and my marriage and my school and my friends and my social media and, and my video games and, the, and my hobbies and my sports. And, and oh, look, there's a little bit of room left on the plate. So I'll just move this one thing over here and this other thing over here and Jesus will get that spot. That's not repentance. No, what God, real repentance is not adding Jesus to an already full life. Real repentance is taking that plate and walking over to the trash and raking it all into the trash can and then Jesus gets the whole thing. That's repentance. It's absolute. That brings us to our third characteristic of real repentance. Real repentance involves our affections and impacts our actions. It's absolute. Thirdly, real repentance is strange. Real repentance is strange. You say, what do you mean? What I mean is that God, what God wants, what God expects from his people is not normal to the average person. Uh, not now and not then. Consider this comment from pastor and author Dale Ralph Davis. He says, quote, only Yahweh lays this either or all or nothing demand on his people. The other gods and goddesses of the ancient Near East were not so picky and intolerant. A pagan devotee was welcome to address multiple gods and goddesses in prayer simultaneously. It is only in Israel that we meet this jealous God. See, now we're getting to the heart of what Israel was finally going to to learn. Uh, Do you remember Eli and his sons? What did they do? They made themselves heavy and God into a lightweight. That was their issue. That was their problem. And then the elders of Israel at the battle of chapter 4, they decide to treat God like he's a genie, that they could just kind of rub the lamp and get their three wishes. And then God goes on this victory tour through all the cities of the Philistines, and they have to learn that the God of Israel isn't like all those other gods. And it's a painful lesson that they're having to learn. He is a jealous God. He will permit no other gods in his presence. He burns with wrath toward any hint of idolatry or divided devotion. Why is that? I mean, think about it. Isn't that kind of unhealthy? By normal standards, isn't it? Kind of toxic? Narcissistic? I mean, if he really loved these people, wouldn't he give them the space to kind of be themselves and dabble with all the different deities that they wanted to dabble with? I don't know. What do you think? I mean, think about it this way. Do you think letting your husband or your wife share a bed with somebody else would be a sign that you have a healthy marriage? Songwriter and church planner Shai Lin, in his meditation on the jealousy of God, put it this way. He said, the God of the Bible who invites our trust must be understood to be nothing like us. Just as the distance between earth and stars, God's thoughts are much higher than ours, so his jealousy is on a whole other level, unintelligible to the soul of a rebel. So tell me, what kind of God would he be if he wasn't bothered to see idolatry? Is God just supposed to laugh and withhold his wrath when he's replaced with a golden calf? You say, I don't worship a golden calf. Well, for us, it's self and sex and loads of cash atrocious paths, we still don't know the half of how these things provoke his holy wrath. Yes, it's true. Real repentance. It is a strange repentance. But that doesn't mean it isn't sensible because God is unique. 
God is one of a kind. He's not just mighty, he's almighty. He's not just creative, he's the creator. He's unlike anyone else in existence. You remember what Hannah uh, prayed in in chapter 2? She said, there's none holy like the Lord. There's none beside thee. There's no other God. Real repentance recognizes this. And I just wonder how many are sitting today within the sound of my voice who have bowed their head in prayer, who have been baptized, who have served in the church, who have sat under preaching, who have read their Bibles, who have felt the warm and fuzzies when their favorite song was played, but have never really repented. I cannot possibly overstate the tragedy of false repentance. This is life and death. This is the difference between an eternity in hell and an eternity in the new creation, friends. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful, mighty, amazing works in your name? And to many he will say, I didn't know you. I shudder to think how many of you, when asked why you are confident that God loves you as his child, will go on and on about how you have always believed in God and how you just try to be a good person and you've never even once considered that you must repent, that you need to make that 180 degree turn and and, and turn away from your selfishness and your self-reliance and throw yourself on the mercies of the living God. May it never be. And may it never be that you enter eternity unprepared because I never told you that you must repent. God's rescue, his restoration only follows real repentance. I told you there were four characteristics of real repentance. Here's number four. It impacts the affections and the actions. It's absolute. It's strange. Fourthly, real repentance still requires a mediator. Real repentance still requires a mediator. See, repentance, turning away from sin, in and of itself, it can't change what we've done in the past. It's a necessary condition of rescue, but it's not a sufficient condition of rescue. Notice what Samuel does, though. Samuel's a sort of model, a type of one who would come later. Look at verse 5. Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, And I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said uh, said there, we've sinned against the Lord. Notice the role that Samuel takes in this passage. He's not the high priest, but he he becomes a sort of an interim priest here. He represents the people before the throne of God. He pours out this water before the Lord. That's actually the only time in the Bible that I'm aware of that this type of Ritual takes place. I think what Samuel's doing is something like this. He's pouring it out and he's saying something like, God, we're just, we are, we're poured out in front of you. Like we are broken and poured out. Just like this water. Later he offers a nursing lamb as a whole burnt offering. What, what does all of that actually accomplish? In and of itself, nothing, but it's a symbol of something that is so significant. It's, it's not a magical trick that Samuel's doing. What he's doing is he's symbolizing the role of a mediator who would come later and offer himself as the sacrificial lamb slain and spilled out before the, the father. In other words, Samuel's actions on behalf of the people of Israel remind us that our relationship with God depends on the work of a mediator. Without the work of Jesus Christ living for us 
dying for us, rising for us, interceding for us, we have no hope. But just like Samuel said, I'll pray for you. Jesus prays for us. Just like Samuel offered up a spotless lamb, Jesus offered up himself. And the result is that all those who repent, all those who really repent, need not be afraid of the wrath of God because our priest represents us before God's throne. Our Jesus makes us accepted in the beloved. Christ himself guarantees that we're heard, that we are loved as his children. The only question really is, have you really repented? Not have you had remorse. Not have you completed a ritual. Not do you possess a magical relic. Not are you religious, but have you repented? Because only real repentance leads to divine rescue. Israel finally repents. We see that in verses 2 through 6, and it's not long before the renewed relationship with God is tested. Notice with me not only the nature of repentance explained, but in the second place from verses 7 through 11, the practice of repentance examined. The practice of repentance examined. We learn in verse 7 that uh, the Philistines, they've been paying attention to the goings-on in Israel. They find out, uh, like any occupying force, keenly aware anytime their enemies gathered in large groups and they find out what's going on. Here's this massively large group of Israelites gathered uh, just a few miles away from the border. And so they muster their armies and march. <clears throat> Excuse me, they march up to the foothills in order to do battle against Israel and the people of Israel are terrified. In other words, what's happening here in this passage is their commitment to repentance, their commitment to really serving the Lord like they said they were going to do, it's being tested. It's being examined. What we're meant to ask, actually God's allowing himself to be tested too. We're meant to ask, what is Israel going to do now? And secondly, what's God going to do? Is he going to keep his word? What's God going to do when the chips are down? What Israel used to do was to try and manipulate the outcome of the battle. But notice that their repentance, notice what their repentance looks like when they're faced with this test. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now, I think our author, he's intending for us to see a major contrast between chapter 4 on the one hand and chapter 7 on the other. Think about this. If you can remember that far back. Uh, do you remember what happened in chapter 4? They bring the ark into the camp. The elders uh, are excited. They're saying, we're told that they, the people, they give a loud shout. And they say, bring the ark that it may save us. And they lose the battle and there's this great outcry. But here in chapter 7, it's like a mirror image. Uh, the people aren't shouting with a loud voice. They're asking Samuel to cry out on their behalf. They know they need a mediator. And then... They're not saying, it will save us. They're saying, he will save us. Catch the difference? So you can see the totally different attitude of the children of Israel when their repentance is put to the test. And then there's another outcry, only this time it's not the outcry in Israel because all these people had died. It's God actually thundering from heaven with a loud voice to confuse the enemy. So what, what, it's like a test. It's like an examination. God is showing the children of Israel what kind of repentance he desires, and he's letting them see it in real life. And then he's showing them how he intends to display his mercy in the world on behalf of them in, in, in the routing of their enemies. 
It's being put to the test. And that reality leaves me with two impressions. First of all, consider for a moment the character of God on display in this event. His people had been committing spiritual adultery uh, adultery against him for years. They'd gone back like a, a pig to the mire for what must have been the 50th time. They treated him like an animal to be manipulated, really, like a piece of heavy equipment. Like, we've got to respect it. It's powerful, but we are ultimately there to use this thing. But the moment they truly repent, the moment their hearts turn and their actions show that they're serious, the moment they make the radical step of casting aside the false gods and and humbly serving him alone in faith, he eagerly receives them and rescues them and delivers them from the enemy. No waiting period, no hesitation. Think about what this says about the character of our God. You, listen, you don't know anyone like this. You don't know anyone who is, whose mercy is so complete, so pure, so persistent that they would welcome you back after such betrayal. But our God is eager to enjoy the repentance of his people. That's, that's what he longs for and desires. That means, here's what that means for today. It means that if today the spirit of God is convicting your heart, calling you to return to the Lord, then he wants you to respond now. He rejoices in the repentance of even one sinner. We read that earlier in the service. This is like the shepherd who lost his sheep, his one sheep, and he leaves the 99 to find the one. It's like the woman who lost a precious coin and she sweeps and she cleans and she moves the furniture around until she finds it and she rejoices when she finds that one lost coin. It's like the father who, betrayed by his youngest son, disrespected, dishonored, watches him walk away and waits for him every day. And when he sees him on the horizon, he runs to embrace him. This is our God. So I have a question. Why would you stay away? Why would you hang back and hang your head? Why wallow in the shame? Why despair in the guilt? Because the moment that you return to the Lord, he is eager to receive you, and Jesus, the perfect priest, the perfect lamb, has paid the price and made the way so that when you come to God, there is nothing written against you, no sentence of death, no condemnation anymore. There's something else I gleaned from this great victory Here it is. God is good to allow our repentance to be tested. God's good to allow our faith to be tested. Uh, It doesn't feel good, but God is good to put us to the test. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He calls it the tested genuineness of your faith. In other words, how do you know whether you really have faith? How do you know whether you really repented? Well, I felt really bad, had a lot of feelings. I really feel like I meant it. Okay, feelings can trick you. Feelings are not enough for me. When the stakes are this high, they are not enough. No, God in his mercy, what he does is he allows tests to come. 
Tests like this one with Israel where they had to make a choice. Are we going to go back to our old ways or are we going to walk and live out this repentance? He tests us, and that's good. Like we come to church on a Sunday morning or uh, youth ministry on Wednesday, it's a lot easier to see the character of God and respond in kind when you hear this wonderful music and we're all singing together. But then what, what God does, he lets us be tested because now it's not Sunday morning anymore, it's Monday morning. It's not Wednesday night anymore, it's Friday night. And we're being tested. Will the same faith that caused our hearts to swell and our eyes to fill with tears when we were gathered with God's people sustain us when trials come? Those trials are coming. Teenagers, listen to me. One day, you are going to wake up on a Sunday morning in an apartment or a dorm room in a city that's far from here. And there is, for the first time, nobody within 50 miles or 100 miles or 200 miles of you is going to give a rip about whether you get up and go to church. And it's going to be between you and God. And in that moment, your faith is going to be tested. You all know what I'm talking about. It's Saturday morning. You finished your coffee. You, you're looking at your bank account online, and once you've paid the utility bills and the mortgage and covered that unexpected visit to the doctor, you realize keeping your financial commitment to your church or to the missionaries that you've committed to support is going to be a little bit more painful than you thought it would be, and your repentance and the faith that you're walking in, it's going to be tested. And what I'm saying is that God allows these moments. Sometimes they are public. Sometimes they are dramatic, spectacular life and death like this battle. Sometimes they are subtle and incremental. But if you continue to live out your repentance, you're going to find that God will sustain you through those times. He will strengthen your faith. He will supply your every need until the day you go to be with Christ. By the way, teenagers, look for this. Look for this. When you're looking at grown, you know, older people, <laughs> look at how they handle the trials. Because those who maintain their faith and continue to walk out their repentance when they're being tested, those are the people whose faith is real. And you can trust that. We've seen this morning the nature of repentance explained, the practice of repentance examined, but notice with me in the third place from verses 12 and following, the outcome of repentance extended. The outcome of repentance extended. Samuel and the children of Israel, they celebrate this wonderful victory of God over the Philistines by setting up a stone. Samuel calls it Ebenezer. It's a word that means stone of help. And its inscription reads this. To this point, the Lord has helped us. This moment marks the beginning of a season of rest and restoration for the children of Israel. Look at their new situation. Instead of oppression, they enjoy victory. Instead of uh, cities being taken away, their cities are restored. In the place of the chaotic years of Eli and his worthless sons, Samuel is now judging Israel, and it's a time of justice, and it's a time of peace they're able to celebrate the loyal love and the mercy of God. This is what it looks like to walk in repentance, turning away completely from sin and from idolatry. That's something we do. But when deliverance comes, when God rescues, that's where our focus will be. Not, hey, look at me, I repented, aren't I great? But up to this point, the Lord has helped us. He's been merciful and kind to me. 
But look at all the ways that God moved in my life to bring about deliverance. Jesus paid it all. He led me all the way. Hallelujah. He thundered against the spiritual forces of wickedness that had oppressed me. And all I had to do, just like the children of Israel, was enter in and kind of grab the spoils. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. We repent, but Jesus rescues. He proves his loyal love by shedding his blood. Praise be to God. His salvation and his deliverance and his rescue is complete and everlasting for all those who turn to him, for all those who really repent, who wholeheartedly, absolutely repent from sin and self-reliance and lean on Jesus alone. So friends, this morning, our text gives us a very simple directive. Repent. Christian ministers, like myself, exhort us to do all sorts of things. Come to church. Read your Bible. Serve others. Be generous. Pray. Sing. Love your neighbor. Serve the widows and the orphans. But let me just make something really clear. Unless you repent, unless you agree with God, that you were hurtling toward hell and, and that your sin and your rebellion had you locked in the sentence of death and it's only through his mercy that you are still alive and you come to him and you say, I'm sorry, you were right. I, I want to repent. I want to turn from my sin and I want to believe in Jesus. Unless that happens, you will not be saved. You might be a member of the church and a reader of the Bible and a doer of good deeds. You might be the kindest person in your school or your office, but if you have not repented, then you are not a child of God. Amen. And I just wonder today if there are any whom the Holy Spirit is convicting, any who have been religious and remorseful but never really repentant, who today need to give up the ruse and lay themselves on the mercy of a holy God. I wonder today if there are any teenagers that were convicted in their heart about something specific on Friday night or again on Saturday and then again this morning and you're wrestling even now, will I repent? You must repent. Don't ignore it. I am not being the least bit sensational when I say your chances will soon run out. I wonder today if there are believers in this room who started out in repentance have been, and you, you, you've been walking the path, but you found yourself kind of looking back like Lot's wife. And you need to come back, return to the Lord, and recommit yourself to a life of true devotion to Jesus. You know, when we hear a, a clear directive like this from Scripture, the temptation, just like it is any other week, is to uh, you know, close in prayer feel a little bit bad, sing a song, and then as we're leaving the building, we kind of shake it off and we forget about it. But friends, let me just encourage you, please, 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 don't do that. Don't be like that man who looks at his face in a mirror and then he goes away without fixing the pimples and the, and the, the gross stuff that's on his face. Like, make the change that the Spirit is convicting you to make. Would you pray with me now? Uh, let's take a moment to respond to the word of God.
Father, this morning we've seen that there is only one way, exactly one way to approach you. Not through religion, not through a ritual, not through bringing some kind of relic, not through mere remorse, but as repentant sinners. Father, this morning, for those of us who are believers, we want to renew that, that repentance. We want to walk in that repentance and continue to say no to sin. Continue to say no to our pride. Continue to say no to our self-righteousness and rely wholeheartedly on the work of Jesus Christ. Father, there may be some in this room who you know, you can see hearts, have had religious feelings, but they've never repented. And so, Father, I pray that today would be the day when the angels in heaven rejoice over the repentance of a single sinner. Lord, we pray that you would move in hearts in a way that brings them, brings all of us to yourself. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in a moment, we're going to stand together and uh, join in singing uh, a response to the Word of God, here's what I would encourage you to do. If the Spirit of God is convicting you about your need to repent, I would invite you to respond right away. And the way that you can do that, there's a couple ways you can do that. You can just grab a friend nearby and say, hey, would you pray with me? And of course, you can do that here in the front of the room. I'd love to pray with you myself. Uh, And I would ask this, if we could have maybe two elders that are standing in the back of the room And those guys would love to be able to take uh, the word of God and show you how you can repent from your sin and become a forgiven follower of Jesus Christ today. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and sing now. So I would invite you to stand and let's all make sure that we're living in response to the word.